Let's dig into Acts 26, 1 through 32. So if you have a Bible, please, please open up to Acts 26, 1 through 32. Uh, we've been in a series called Finishing Strong, and this is the last section of the book of Acts. Paul is journeying from, uh, from Asia Minor, going to Rome, but it's a zigzag trip because he's going to go from Asia Minor to Greece, back to Jerusalem, and then ultimately to the city of Rome. Zigzag trip, crazy trip, but in that trip, he models nine things that people do if they're going to finish well. And you know what some of these topics are, the things like using spiritual grit, things like equipping the next generation, things like using the right kind of power, nine things that you can do to finish well. Paul models these things. There is one topic that gets repeated in this section, and it's the topic of apologetics. Now, we, we saw this because, um, oh, I got to get my pointer down to the place where it's going to work. There we go. We saw this in Acts chapter 21. Paul does apologetics with many people in 21. He does it with one person in 26, the king. Okay, like the king over Israel, he's able to do apologetics with the king. So this is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> Paul is doing apologetics with many and then with one. And so the thing we want to look at today is if you're going to finish your, your life well, your Christian life well, what that means is that you are going to get into the habit of defending your faith. We want to talk about that this morning. Now, Jack Schaefer is a guy that wrote a book called The Like Switch. L-I-K-E. He was with the FBI for many years, and he had a knack for getting hardened criminals to open up and talk. Sometimes it took weeks, sometimes it took months, but this guy was brilliant on getting people to talk. It wasn't manipulation, it wasn't coercion, it wasn't waterboarding. He got people to talk by getting them to like him. Now, when I, uh, I first read the book, I thought, I don't think so. I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's going to work. Then I read the book, and I had some jaw-dropping moments in this book because what he, what he writes about is so true to life, and many of the things fit in with biblical principles, especially principles in the Proverbs. And he told story after story of people coming into the interrogation room. He turned on the like switch and people who are hardened criminals would talk and confess their crimes. Read it the first time. Read it the second time when we were traveling with, uh, with uh, I was, Cindy and I were traveling through North Africa with our son, and we were listening to it via Audible. And, uh, and I, just, I just was blown away by what this guy has to say. Now, when I, when I think about this, uh, the like switch, I think some of you are probably thinking, nah, I don't think that's for me because, you see, I'm into authenticity. I don't want to have to do things to get people to like me. That sounds like manipulation. That sounds like being inauthentic. I don't think so. Having read the book, having studied the life of Paul, I am convinced that Paul learned how to do things that facilitated strong relationships. Remember what Paul was like previous to coming to Christ. 
He was a violent oppressor of Christians. He was somebody who would rip into a house church meeting, and he would detain people and drive people out of, out of cities. Uh, this is not a guy that you want to be a close good buddy before he came to Christ. Then he comes to Christ, and he still has that edge to him. And it says when Paul left the city of Damascus, he said, you know, the church had peace again because young Apostle Paul was not a very likable guy. Decade, a decade goes by or more, and Paul then becomes this person who is warm-hearted. He's the guy who writes the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. He's the guy that writes the fruit of the Spirit chapter in Galatians chapter 5. He's the one who writes the unity chapter in Philippians chapter 4. Paul learned how to build strong relationships so that people would like him. Now, it's not like as I manipulate you, but it's like in the power of the Spirit. And so, the heart of the apologist, I'm going to argue in this chapter, is love. It's love for God first. It's love for people second. And what I want to argue is that love is willing to flip on the like switch so that people are willing to listen to our message. That's what we're going to see Paul, Paul does. Now, I want to show you the structure of this passage. Uh, the structure is like a sandwich. Now, I've said this before. There's another passage in this section where it's like a sandwich, where the bread on top is love for God, the bread on the bottom is love for people and kindness for people, and the meat in the middle is Paul's story about truth. I won't keep that up there too long because some of you are kind of hungry right now, and you're going to be ordering Reuben sandwiches for lunch. But this is definitely structured like a sandwich as, as we get into it. Now, we start off with love for God. If you're going to be a good apologist, it starts with the supernatural. What I'm arguing is that Christian apologetics are com apologists are committed to hosting the presence of God, no matter where they are. Chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, remember, this is the king over Israel. Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand. That'll be very important in just a second. He stretched out his hand and made his defense. That's the Greek word for apologia, apologetics. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against the, all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The key thought here is that Paul is hosting the presence of God. Now, that may be an unfamiliar idea to some of you, so let me, let me flesh it out. When you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live inside you forever. He indwells you forever. He indwells your body forever. The Holy Spirit is with you both now during this life, but because it's forever, He's also with you during the entirety of eternity. The Holy Spirit is with you forever. But here's the amazing thing. The Holy Spirit brings the presence of Father and Son into your life as well. So once you come to Christ, the hosting ministry of the triune God becomes operative in your life. 
The triune God is, is there. Whether you're conscious of Him or not, He is there waiting to be seen by you and known by you and communicated with by you. He's there. Our responsibility is to host the presence of the triune God who is in our life. Now, let's stop and think about this for a second. I want you to, very few, of, if any of you are British in this congregation, but I had to think of a king, so I, I started thinking about Queen Elizabeth in her 90th birthday. Imagine that you are present at the 90th birthday in Buckingham Palace, and you are on that balcony in Buckingham Palace. You've got Prince Charles there. You've got Prince William there. You've got Kate Middleton there. Everybody's there with the queen, and you're there. And everybody says, who, who, who's, who's that up there? Well, it's you. It's you. You're there. And you say to the queen, queen, next year we would be honored if you would come to our house in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. We would like to host you for your 91st birthday party. They agree to it. So they land at Frank Phillips Field. They have their, their carriage with their horses going down the street, and they arrive at your house, and you host her birthday. How do you feel when she's there? Charles is there. Kate's there, everybody's there, Queen's there. How do you feel when, pressure, like, how do I do this? Like, like, I need Carson from Downton Abbey to be here, you know. I need somebody to help me know how to do the protocol. You're feeling pressure the whole time because you're having to host the Queen of England and her entourage. Hosting the presence of God is the exact opposite of that. When you host the presence of God, you host the one who is your Abba Father, who loves you unconditionally. You host the one who is the risen Son of God, the one who shepherds you, the one who loves you, the one who is your leader, your guide, your advocate. When you host the presence of God, you host the Spirit who's marked you out as being God's by the seal of the Spirit. When you host the presence of God, it's as if all of the presence of the gracious triune God has come into your life, and you have the opportunity of recognizing His presence as you go throughout the day. Now, that, that, that's just an astonishing privilege, and I would say that most followers of Jesus neglect that privilege. You know, you can, you can neglect it by just going into autopilot, spiritual autopilot. You wake up in the morning, maybe you've got your quiet time, maybe you read the Bible, you pray for a little while, but you think nothing about God during the rest of your day. That's not hosting the presence of God. Hosting the presence of God is that consciousness throughout the day. If you take it seriously, that's, that's a good thing. But I would, again, say many believers are not consciously thinking about hosting the presence of God in their life. Now, Paul is conscious of this, and we see this in verse 1. Paul stretches out his hand, and he makes his defense. When you stretched out your hand as a prisoner in the ancient world, what would people see and hear? Chains. They would see and hear chains, marking out the fact that you're a prisoner. Paul stretches out his hand, and they hear the clinking of the chains. They hear the rattling of the chains as he stretches out his hands to make his defense. 
Nobody else in that room had chains. Paul does. What else would people have seen in Paul? Everybody in that auditorium had absolutely pristinely dressed up for this occasion. All the soldiers have their dress uniforms on. They've got their best medals affixed to the uniforms. They've got their best sashes affixed to the uniforms. All the civilian leaders have their best clothes on. Who has shabby clothes? The Apostle Paul. So as Paul stretches out his hand to make his defense, what sound do they hear and what sight do they see? The sound of imprisonment and the clothes of imprisonment. In Luke's theology, that means something is happening spiritually. What's happening spiritually? Luke 12, 11. When they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour, that very moment, what you ought to say. When you are persecuted, it is an opportunity for the hosting ministry in your life to come forward. You're now hosting the presence of God, Luke 21, 12. You'll be brought before kings and governors. Paul is literally before the king of Israel. For my name's sake, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it beforehand in your mind not to meditate on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. As soon as Paul reaches out his hand, it's like the step of faith where Paul is saying, all right, Lord, here goes. Here goes. Here's my rhetorical flourish. Here's what people in the ancient world do before they, they begin to say something. Here is the clanking of the chains. Here's the, here's the obvious shabbiness of my clothes. He's hosting the presence of God as he's about ready to share his faith. Paul continues to host the presence of God in the following verses. Uh, I, won't I won't put all these up on the screens, but I'll read to you some of the key ones. Paul says, I now stand here on trial because of, key phrase, hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, camp on that for a second. If the God of the universe is making promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that assumes that God is alive and active and real up in heaven. And so Paul is reminding his hearers, God is active and alive right here, right now. The same God who talked to the fathers is here now. He's hosting the presence of God. Then he takes it one step further, and he says, why is it thought incredible to any of you that God raises the dead? Well, if Jesus is risen from the dead, that means the resurrected Jesus is spiritually present right here, right now. Paul is hosting the presence of God in the way that he acts toward, towards his audience and the way that he speaks verbally communicating his faith. All I'm saying is this, as Paul prepares to speak, he is hosting the presence of the risen and invisible God who is spiritually present in that auditorium hall. So what, how do you host God's presence all the time? Well, it begins, first of all, with prayer. It begins with prayer. All of you on Monday morning leave your home and you go somewhere. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you probably still do that at some level because you're taking kids to school or taking kids to the park or whatever. 
So hosting the presence of God begins with prayer, where you say, Lord God, uh, I want to be in communication with you 24-7. I want to pray without ceasing. I want to continually behold your presence in my life as I go throughout my day. I may be doing diapers. I may be running spreadsheets. I may be communicating something. I want to encounter you every moment of the day. If I'm in intense concentration during my day and I'm thinking about something, Lord, let me quickly go back to you as I finish my task. That's how you begin to host the presence of God. It begins with prayer. It continues with mindfulness where you, you ponder, what is God doing right here, right now in this moment? Now, most people never stop to think about what's happening right here, right now in this moment because we're too consumed with ourselves or too consumed with our thoughts. There is a way of being throughout your day where you notice what is happening in the here and now, in the moment, and you discern what's going on, and you bring that into fellowship with God, where you say, Lord, I see that this person seems upset. Lord, what's that about? How can I enter into that? Lord, it seems like this person is, is doing great. How do I enter into that and provide encouragement? It is a right here, right now mindfulness that connects what you see with the presence of the invisible God in your life. It continues again with discernment regarding the people around you. Do you see somebody who is hurting or struggling? Well, what might God have you do in that place? Do you see somebody who is overjoyed? What God, might God have you do? You're discerning what's happening in the here and now. You're discerning what people are doing in the here and now, and you're bringing that into fellowship with God. And then it has to do with shifting the spiritual environment. Let me say something about shifting spiritual environments. Every time you move into a place, there is a culture, an immediate culture in that place. It could be a culture of tension. It could be a culture of pride. It could be a culture of joy and happiness. It could be a culture of a partying culture, you know. But wherever you go, there is a culture that's going on, and there's a spiritual atmosphere connected to that culture. Hosting the presence of God is about discerning what the culture is right there in that moment and then saying, Lord Jesus, what do I do to bring this culture in a Godward direction? I may have told this story before, but we were in England not too long ago, and there was a woman who came to the park with her two kids. She had newly arrived in Bedford, England, newly arrived in Bedford, England, and she was there at the park, and she was in tears. And um, you talk about like a culture at that park. Kids are playing, but here's a woman with tears. One of my daughter's friends said to Sarah, hey, can you talk to her? Can you talk to her? My daughter, who's very hospitable, saw her tears, had this look of, of compassion on her face, and spontaneously gave her a light hug and said, I'm Sarah. What's your name? And the, the spiritual atmosphere in that young mom's life shifted as Sarah brought her into King's Arms Church in Bedford, England, and helped to turn her life into a better place. 
Hosting the presence of God is about living in the moment and shifting spiritual atmospheres. Now, I know that that may be like new things for, for some of you. I want to encourage you to hold that as a category in your thought because this is exactly what Paul is doing as he's beginning to share his story. He is hosting the presence of God with intent to shift the spiritual atmosphere in that auditorium. Now we move from the supernatural to Paul's story. He begins in verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul hated the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Zero in on that last line. You know, 20 years ago, we didn't have YouTube, right? We have YouTube today. So when, if, if somebody wants to see what terrorists are doing around the globe, you can find that somewhere on YouTube. Well, when we think about what Paul is doing in that last line, think about some of those little clips that you've seen about terrorism in the Middle East. Uh, Paul had raging fury. You see any of that in some of the YouTube clips that you see about terrorism? Sure you do. Uh, do you see people about to be led away to death? Yeah, you do. That was the Apostle Paul. Paul had an angry, vengeful demeanor to him. He wanted to crush anybody who followed the name of Jesus. That's how he starts off his story. You think that had people's attention? <laughs> you better believe it did. Everybody is like, wow. What is he about to say? Let me pause for a second from the story and just say something about stories in general. The great thing about stories is you can't refute them because they're your stories. You were there. You encountered the things you're about to talk about. They are irrefutable. And so stories are great ways to defend the faith because your story is your story and you can have a ring of truth about that story that's really compelling to people. Um, but you have, to, you have to tell it, and you have to tell it strategically. Now, this is not the only place where Paul tells a story. Paul tells a story four times in the New Testament. It's originally presented by Luke in, Luke in Acts chapter 9, but Paul himself tells it in Galatians 1, in Acts 22, Acts 24, and Acts 26 telling it here. So, what do we learn from each of these stories? Well, there is always a structure to his story, and essentially, it's a three-point structure. This is my life before I came to Christ. This is what happened to me as I was coming to Christ, and this is my life now that I am a Christian. It is a three-part story. Now, here's what I'm finding interesting about the science of storytelling. Storytelling is now a science because you can feed stories into computers and have the computers analyze the stories. So there's a recent study that was done, uh, and that study was done about novels. And they fed all this information into some computers, and they said, 
you know, if you, if you look at all the great novels, they essentially go down into these five areas. Exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and denouement. Take all the great novels that have been written, from War and Peace to, you know, the latest Brad Thorne novel. They all have that essential element to them. Or if you look at all how the, uh, good movies, they've done the same thing with movies. There is, there is the W uh, structure where you have, starts with a good place, setback number one, something goes bad, discovery revealed, character learns, setback number two, something new and very bad, challenges overcome, mystery is solved. That's the W. So you take the, the structure of a novel and you take the structure of, of, of movies and you boil it down, you end up with three essential components, which is before, the climax, and then living in this new place. Uh, your story has that, has that same, that same uh, idea to it. And um, I want you to notice that Paul is going to tell his story. It's the same story, but he's going to tell it differently with the different audiences. There's going to be something for the Roman soldiers, something for his Jew Jewish hearers, and something for King Agrippa. Now, think about what there is for the Roman soldiers. Um, here's, the, here's the detail in verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Now, why would you include that detail about midday? Why would you even care about midday? The reason why is because nobody, nobody traveled at midday in the ancient world. Nobody except Roman soldiers. I mean, most people, if they're traveling, they got up early, they, they, they marched until about, oh, 11 o'clock, from 11 o'clock till 3 o'clock, they took a siesta, they had stuff to eat, then they got back on their journey from 3 o'clock onward, except the Roman soldiers. And who does Paul have in his audience? Roman soldiers. So as Paul is telling his story, he's telling a detail that speaks to commitment. I am so committed to my pathway, I even traveled at midday. And the Roman soldiers are saying, yeah, Paul, high five. You're awesome. You're amazing. That's what we'd do too if we were you. He got something in there for the Roman soldiers. Another detail. He tells them that everybody fell down on the ground. Now, um, if you take an online Bible program and you do a search for, quote, unquote, fell on the ground, you come up with about 25 hits. And almost all those hits have to do with somebody falling on the ground before the God of the universe or sovereign king. So the Jewish hearers who had memorized a lot of the scriptures are going, online concordance, online concordance. Let me see, what is this? Oh, yeah, fall on the ground. Uh, if that really happened, had to be something supernatural about that event because only God could make that happen where everybody falls on the ground. I think he's doing this because his Jewish hearers would have gone, okay, this, that's got the ring of truth to it. I'm, 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 you got my attention, Paul. You got my attention. I think that might be true. Paul puts another detail into his story. In verse 14, he, call, he says that, uh, says, uh, in verse, um, next verse, he says, uh, Paul quotes the resurrected Jesus saying something kind of strange, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
is it hard for you to kick against the goads? What? Goads? What in the world is that? Well, goads were these sharp sticks used for driving cattle. Sometimes those sharp sticks would have little nails in them, and you would rake those sharp sticks like sharp, heavy rakes against the grain on the threshing floor, separating the, the, the chaff from the kernel. So, kick against the goads. Here's the resurrected Jesus using a figure of speech, kick against the goads. And it's a little bit like our figure of speech, like beating my head against the wall. I tried to do it, but it was like beating my head against the wall. I couldn't make it work. He's kicking against the goads. Well, why would the resurrected Christ use that figure of speech? Jesus knows He's going to communicate with King Agrippa II, and King Agrippa II's ears perked up immediately when he heard this, because Agrippa was a Hellenistic Jew. He was educated with the language and the literature of the Greeks. And there's a very famous line in Euripides that has to do with kicking against the goads. So King Agrippa's thinking, whoa, okay, this, this now is something that I can relate to. Paul in his story is consciously using things that would appeal to his Roman hearers, that would appeal to his Jewish hearers, that would appeal to like the main guy there who is the king, King Agrippa II. Do you see how Paul is turning on the like switch in the power of the Spirit? He's turning on the like switch. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 is an example of the like switch. Paul says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. It's not manipulation. It's not inauthenticity. It's in the power of the Spirit doing things that build warm personal relationships. Now, look, when I take the Myers-Briggs type indicator, I, I show up as an introvert. Now, people often think, now, not you. That's because in the Myers-Briggs 2, I am an enthusiastic, accepting introvert, but I am most definitely an introvert. It's much harder for me to turn on the like switch than some of you extroverts. Like, Adam Miller is an extrovert, and I, I really appreciate that about, about Adam, and it, what makes Adam good at what he does is that he is, he is an extrovert. I've got to work harder at it. But Paul, in the power of the Spirit, is working hard at building strong, respectful, honoring relationships as a way to advance the cause of Christ. That's part of apologetics. That's part of apologetics. If you're going to finish well, you've got to be an apologist. And if you're going to be an apologist, part of that is turning on the like switch in the power of the Spirit. So, there are things in Paul's story that change, but there's some things that don't change. And here's, here's what does not change. What does not change is that he emphasizes the supernatural. In the story, Jesus is quoted as having said, I have appeared. That's an astonishing statement. Do Greek gods suddenly appear? Are there any stories of Zeus appearing? Any stories of of Mars appearing. Any, no, there's no stories like that. This is, this is mythology. But Jesus says, I have appeared. There was something supernatural about this story. And then Jesus says, rise and stand. The supernatural Jesus 
is giving Paul the privilege of rising and standing in his presence. Even though he's the sovereign king of the universe, Paul has the privilege of standing in his presence as somebody who has dignity because of the cross. Um, I mean, no kidding, this was a, a game changer in terms of this communication because the people are going, whoa, this, this is not something that the Greek or the Roman gods did. This is, this is, this is, something, this is something different. Um, I want to ask you, is there anything in your story about coming to Christ that emphasizes the supernatural? You know, there's a, there's a time, I think maybe in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, maybe early 2000s, we're sort of passe to, to emphasize the supernatural among some evangelical groups. Like, eh, don't, don't emphasize that too much. You know, we, 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 you know, you might be regarded as being a, a little weird. I mean, modern people don't, don't they, they want to know that you're a little bit more sophisticated than that. That's long gone. That's long gone. Because of how Christianity is exploding in the developing world with signs and wonders and miracles. People in the West, we're talking Europe and America, are now very interested in the supernatural. What about your faith story emphasizes the supernatural? Now, when you begin to tell your story, you should, you should mark those things down because those are things that communicate the greatness of God in the context of your story. Notice the other thing that doesn't change is not just the supernatural, but the eternal. Paul says um, that he's going to get a commission to, so that people receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Wait, what does that mean? I mean, sanctification is something that happens like throughout our life and on into eternity. So what Paul is saying is not only is the supernatural wrapped up in my story, but there is a sense of purpose that's wrapped up in my story as well. Some aspects of the story change, change, but the core part of the story always stays the same. Now, one, one bit of application before we, before we move on. I would encourage you sometime in the next several weeks to take several hours and write out your testimony in 2,500 words. That may seem like a lot of words. It's not a lot of words. Write it out in 2,500 words. How did you come to Christ? What was it like growing up? What were some of the challenges that you had? What was the crisis that made you open to Jesus Christ? What was the crisis that brought you to faith? What's happened since then? There have been ups and downs since then. How has God showed Himself faithful to you uh, in that intervening time? Is there a big idea that you can attach to that story. If you will be faithful to do that and revise it and really, really nail it down, I, I can promise you that God will give you the opportunity to share that faith story with somebody. But if you haven't written it down and you haven't read through it, it may be difficult to notice when an opportunity comes to share it. Write the story down and see what God does with that story. So, um, it begins with the supernatural, it continues with Paul telling a story, it culminates in kindness and kindness. Christian apologists need to be conduits, conduits of God's unconditional 
love. Now, at this point, Paul's story gets like rudely interrupted because Festus, remember Porcius Festus is the procurator underneath the king, and he rudely interrupts Paul's story, and he says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. That was rude. Now, in the ancient world, if you were uh, having a hearing, it was rare that an authority figure would interrupt you before you had completed your defense. It's very, it's, it's, it's very, it's very rare, especially if the king is present. So why would Porcius Festus do this? I don't know for sure, but I wonder if it was sort of a dysfunctional way of currying favor with the king, like, I don't think the king likes this. And so I'm going to curry favor with the king by saying, Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. And then the king might like me more because I did something that he was probably thinking. I don't know if that's the case or not. But in any event, he does something highly irregular. He rudely interrupts Paul while he is telling his story and making his defense. And what's Paul's response? Paul is kind. Um, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. Was Paul saying this most excellent when he really meant, you jerk? I'm not out of my mind, you jerk. No way. Paul is genuine. If you, if you do a little search, again, I'm, my I use Logos Bible software, so I, 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 do this, I do this a lot. But if you do a search on excellent in the works of Paul, uh, love is described as being excellent. The gift of prophecy is described as being excellent. Honoring relationships are described as being excellent. Good works are described as being excellent. When Paul uses the word excellent, he's using it with high levels of authenticity. Paul is receiving a hurt and giving a hug. He's receiving a jab, and he's responding with kindness toward Festus. Now, I want to tell you, in that auditorium, Paul's, Paul's likability went way up because the Romans loved politeness. The Romans loved civility. The Romans loved order. The Romans loved all that. So it was, it's as if the momentum in, in the room swung over to Paul, and everybody's thinking, I like that guy. I really, really like that guy. I'm going to give that guy a second look. I'm going to give that guy's message a second look. I really, really like him. I know it's dicey talking about politics, but um, at the RNC convention, a lot of people were very skeptical of the nominee. And then his kids got up to speak, all except the youngest, got up to speak. And I heard so many people say, I had my doubts until I heard his kids. It's like all of a sudden now, now I'm, I'm giving him a second look. All I'm saying is that when Paul responded to the hurt, uh, the rudeness with kindness, everybody in that auditorium said, I'm giving that guy a second look. I like what I see in the Apostle Paul. Kindness, kindness does that. Paul also shows kindness to King Agrippa. Paul turns from Festus to Agrippa and says, For the king knows about these things, and, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, uh, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. 
Now, now this is an amazing thing. What, he, what he's saying is, Agrippa, look, look, I, I know that you're a savvy guy. I know you know about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. I know you know that. And Agrippa, I know you're a savvy guy. I know that you know about the explosive nature of the early church. I know you know about all this. Agrippa, you, this has not been done in a corner. You know about all these details. You're in touch with pop culture, Agrippa. I know you are. I know you are. Do you believe in the prophets? That was a brilliant statement because he's switching from apologist to evangelist, giving him an opening question, giving him a leading question, asking him a question that would open some doors. Between, between services, I wrote this down on an envelope. My, my, my favorite three questions to ask somebody who makes an outlandish statement are these. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? How did you arrive at that truth? What are the implications of that? See, the heart of an evangelist is, is to move from apologetics, which is generally more truth-oriented, to evangelism, which is more gospel-oriented. Here's the most amazing part of the whole, of the whole story. Agrippa says, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, the way this is rendered in, in the original language gives you the impression, only the impression, that he says this with good-natured joviality, that he said this with a smile on his face, that he said this with a, with a sense of joy, uh, not joy, but happiness in his heart. This is a, a light occasion. This is an occasion that sparkles now with, with humor. And notice something incredible. Agrippa is playfully bantering with the Apostle Paul. Unheard of in the ancient world. You've got a prisoner in prison for two years, in chains, shabbily dressed. You've got the king of the entire region, and they're bantering back and forth like they're fishing buddies. Like they've just gotten off, you know, 18 holes of golf together unheard of. How did that happen? Paul, in the power of the Spirit, turned on the like switch, and he did those things which engender strong relationships. Agrippa is not going to become a Christian. He does not become a Christian uh, throughout the rest of his life. He presides over some pretty horrible things like the destruction of Jerusalem under Titus and Vespasian, uh, but enough of the, enough of the history. <laughs> Paul, says, uh, whether long or short, whether, uh, Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Think of, think of what Paul just did. He raises his arms, symbolizing hosting the presence of God in the first part of the verse, first part of the story. He raises his arms, symbolizing hosting the presence of God. In the last part of the story, everything in the in-between part shows that he is hosting the presence of God as he is doing apologetics. How can Paul be so kind? I mean, how could he be so kind? Seriously. He knows that he's not responsible for the results. He didn't have to sweat the results. The results are up to God. God said, Paul, I'm going to send you to Rome. It's going to be zigzag. You're going to go from like 
Asia Minor to Greece, back to Jerusalem, then over to Rome, but you will get there, Paul, guaranteed. Paul does not have to sweat the results. All he's got to do is be about the process. God says to Paul, you're going to be the apostle of the Gentiles. Paul doesn't have to worry about the results. All I got to do is be about the process of doing apologetics in the power of the Spirit, turning on the like switch in the power of the Spirit. God's going to take care of the rest. So most people have a negative stereotype about apologetics, and, and here's the stereotype. This happened in 1965. Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali knocks him out to get the title. And does that look like a word of kindness in Muhammad Ali's face? Uh, probably not. Muhammad Ali was, a, was, a, was, was really, in some ways, a really fun guy, a, really a great guy in a lot of ways. On the ring, I don't think he exuded kindness. Just don't think he did. And a lot of people have this idea about apologetics is, I'm going to take you atheist and with my arguments, I'm going to take you down. You're going to be down. I beat you. That's not Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics is the allure of gentleness, to quote Dallas Willard. It's the allure of gentleness. It's being, it's being kind. Apologetics is about hosting the presence of God and the power of the Spirit, about kindness in the power of the Spirit, and then telling your story in the power of the Spirit. And again, it's like the sandwich. Top part of the sandwich is the supernatural. Bottom part of the sandwich is kindness. Middle part of the sandwich is the truth. But in every part of that, of that thing up there, that sandwich up there, which we'll keep on for too long because I know you're hungry, um, every part it's a culture that's surrounded with love. Love for God is on the top. Love for people is on the bottom. And love for the truth is in the middle. That's how you do Christian apologetics. And what I want to say is to do Christian apologetics, to finish well, you've got, to, you've got to be an apologist. So quick application. First of all, write out your faith story. Write it out. Take some time to do that. 2,500 words or less. Get in the habit of hosting the presence of God and ask the risen Christ, Jesus, will you allow me to share this story with somebody? And then share it with somebody in the power of the Spirit. And then be kind in their objections. You don't have to answer every objection. You don't have to. I know you feel the pressure to. I know you feel like, oh my gosh, I've got to answer that. If I don't answer this, I'm going to let Jesus down and, and they're not going to come to Christ and it's going to be terrible. Stop. Stop. You don't have to answer every objection. What you have to do is be kind. Be kind in the power of the Spirit. This is not apologetic waterboarding. This is the allure of gentleness. You do this, and opportunities to share Christ will open in wonderful ways. Now, um, let's bow for a moment, and I just want you to take an opportunity to tell the Lord where you are with this concept of hosting the presence. The uh, worship team is going to come forward. They're going to lead us in some final songs, but I really wanted to have some time where you could, you could ask yourself, how, do, how am I doing at hosting the presence of God? For some of you, that's a brand new concept. For some of you, you've, you've heard about this concept, but it's, it's not, you're not that familiar with it. 
I just want you to just tell the Lord, Lord, I want to host your presence in my life. I just don't know how to do it if you don't know how to do it. Or if you're, if you're doing it, Lord, just tell him, Lord, help me excel still more. But you do some business with God about this challenge of hosting the presence of God. Father, I pray that we as a church would host your presence every Sunday morning. I pray that we as individually as a congregation would host your presence every day of our lives. Lord, let us be a conduit, a conduit of your supernatural love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.